This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Thursday, the day we talk about our cities and their developments in the Toronto races. As you heard in Bob's News, longtime city councillor and deputy mayor Denzel Minnan Wong has announced that he'll not be seeking re-election. Now, uh, he is a key ally of John Tory, so the question is, how will this affect the right-left balance on council? He is on the right or at least what passes for it on city council, and especially when it comes to housing policy and the push to intensify and densify our neighborhoods. We've lost our way in terms of having authentic, genuine, and meaningful consultation. We're not listening to our residents. And, you know, there 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 are thousands and thousands of people who... Um, who live in stable residential neighborhoods, and their voice matters, their voice counts. Well, yes, and that is when they want to object to some kind of large development right in their backyard, blocking their sun, blocking their view. Now, meanwhile, prominent urbanist Gil Penalosa has announced that he is joining the mayoral race. What impact will that have? And... In other news, nearly half of young adults in Canada are still living at home with their parents, while the demographics of a neighborhood like Yorkville are changing. So, let's tune into the And now, it's time to tune into the town. And I'd like to welcome Lauren O'Neill, senior news editor of Blog TO. David Crombie, former mayor of Toronto, and Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village and a former city councillor. Hi, everyone. Hi. Hi, Libby. Hi, Lib. Okay. David, you have thoughts on the entry of Gil Penalosa, who you know well, in yes. addition to John Tory, who you know well. Yeah, I think it, first of all, I think it's really good for like a forthcoming campaign because it'll be far more uh, a campaign of ideas and uh, that need to be examined and dealt with before we move before we move on. Um, secondly, I think it'll it'll be good for John Tory. I, I don't know that Gil Penalos expects to be the next mayor of Toronto, but he's a well-known urbanist around the world. Uh, and I think he's going to focus on three or four issues that are vital to the future of the city. But one of those, of course, is one we've talked about earlier, and that is reminding ourselves that there may be great vanity projects around that we'd like to follow, but we've got fundamentals that need, that are fraying at the edges. The place needs to be making sure that we're running it well and not just running it. Um, and I, th- I think you'll find Gil talking about that. He'll talk about housing, which he knows a lot about. And even more so, he'll talk a lot about the importance of the, of the ravines, the importance of green, of the green world. It's one he knows well. He was the, Parks Commissioner in Bogota, Colombia. So this it, it's a really good news for the race. It's good news for the campaign, and it will be good news for the city. Uh, but, Lauren, I mean, he is well-known 
around the world as an urbanist, but uh, that doesn't necessarily translate to name recognition here in Toronto where he's running. No, that, that's true. I mean, I am familiar with him through his work with 808 Cities um, and all the neat ideas that they've brought forward to the city. But like, if I weren't a reporter writing about that, I would not recognize his name necessarily off the top of my head. Though I do think that if he gets his ideas out there, I mean, when he was the parks commissioner in Bogota, he created some 200 parks. I know that a lot of people in my age bracket really want parks because we don't have backyards. Um, if that, these kind of messages get out there, I do think he'd have a lot of support, but definitely not the same name recognition as as Tory or any other high profile candidates we've had in the past. And of course, he's been extremely active on this whole issue of Vision Zero. His his nonprofit, Eight to Eighty, he is the the reason for that name is that cities should work for people who are either eight or eighty. Karen, what do you think of this? I I agree that it's it's good for the city to have debates and that um, you know Tory is very popular. He did everyone agrees that he's done a great job, but um, there's no question that without having the scrutiny of an election then issues, as David mentioned, they, they, they don't get discussed. And, and, I, and I also think that the mayor, Mayor Tory, if he's un, unopposed, and he can't assume he has a mandate for anything. But this way, if he wins the election, which I expect that he will, he then can claim that he has a mandate with more legitimacy. So I, I do think it's better for the city. I think it's better for Tory. And, uh, and good for him. Good for Gil um, Peloso? No. Penalosa. Penalosa. Because I, I met him when I was a city councillor, and he was a very engaging, charismatic individual yeah. that, that can clearly articulate a vision for cities in general. And Bogota certainly had an incredible transformation under his watch. And so it, it's exciting to see that that kind of caliber is uh, brave enough to enter a race where name recognition really means everything. And he's certainly facing an uphill battle. But that being said, I think the city will benefit from his very clear articulation of a vision for what our city could look like. And and you know what, Lauren, you and I are going to have a job trying to get greater Toronto to pay attention to those things. Seriously, some of his campaign, um, like platform things that he's running on are really, really interesting. Like he's talking about reducing speed limits in school zones everywhere to 30. We've been talking about that with Vision Zero for years. But it hasn't worked. Vision Zero has not worked. It's been, what, a decade now? Like maybe less than that. But I mean, we're still having people die every every year, all the time on the streets of Toronto, pedestrians, elderly people, cyclists, Vision Zero isn't working. So something needs to happen. And David, you were saying he's doing something uh, pretty uh, out there with with his uh, campaign signs or lack thereof. That's that's right. One of the things he is doing, and I think it reflects why he's into the race. The the idea is to ratchet up the importance of ideas in the campaign. He's not, I don't think, and I don't wish to wish him harm, obviously, but but he, he's not expecting to win, and therefore he's not expecting to raise a lot of money. And these days it costs a lot of money to run for mayor of Toronto. And so I think what what's em- emblematic of what he's doing 
is that he's decided he's not going to have a lot of signs that he's going to have ask people to put up. He's sending people directions on how they make him may make a sign on his behalf. <laughs> I, I just think that's got a sense about it that just tells you that it's, he's going to make the campaign very, very interesting. Because because we all have time on our hands. Uh, now, turning to the other side of it, Denzel Min and Wong leaving, how does that affect the balance? Now, we heard a very short clip in the news of what he had to say. But basically, he is saying this, and and I'm familiar with this as a resident of a heritage neighborhood. He's saying people worked and saved their whole lives to have a single family house. And, uh, you know, they're almost under assault from construction and condos. And uh, I've actually had people on the show here calling to complain about the way that consultations, they have to be on Zoom, they're not convenient. What do you make of that? Well, I think he's, first of all, uh, he, in the little clip we had of what he had to say, uh, he, he talked about the importance of the stability of neighborhoods. No one should deny that fact. The, the, the great core of, of Toronto's success over the years has been to arrive at stability in neighborhoods. And I say arrive at stability in neighborhoods because sometimes the, 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 the cry for stability in neighborhoods means don't do anything. But that means you're not, you're not coping with change. The city, the city changes on a daily basis, changes every generation, and that change needs to be taken account of, dealt with, and then achieve the stability. If you only stand for stability, you will stand for going backwards. Okay, Karen. Well, I, I think, I mean, Denzel represents a community with a, with a very strong um, resident association organization, and he, he does he does represent tenants, and he represents um communities that are largely detached single-family homes. So he does feel a pressure in a way that um, other councillors may not that live in the more urban sections of the city. And uh, there is no question, uh, living at Young and Eglinton, there is a constant, in my mind, uh, questioning if we got the balance right because we are, there is a lot, quite a bit of construction. There's densifications happening at Young and Eglinton to the point where there's pressure on the roads, the schools, the infrastructure, and the transit. And so... It, it is a legitimate question that he's raising, and, and I think one that should be paid attention to. Um, that being said, it was I was a bit surprised to see he was retiring from politics because he's been doing it for a while, um, and I'm curious to see what his next chapter looks like. But the biggest beneficiary of his resignation will be Michael Thompson because now he will be one of the most um, senior, as it were, city councillors that is a Tory supporter most days. And so it will be it will be good news, I think, for Michael Thompson in terms of what he wishes to do in the next term. Lauren. You know, I, I was surprised, like Karen, to see that he wasn't running again. He has been in politics for, I think, 28 years. You, you got it. You know, uh, just not to interrupt, yeah. but sometimes when city councillors are defeated or the, uh, you know, it's it, what comes next? You know, they've got to be looking for a job and it's not always that easy. Yeah, I mean, maybe he's got something lined up. I don't know. He's just been such a strong voice on council for so long that I was surprised to see that he's leaving. Um, I mean, he has been in politics longer than Doug Ford's nephew, Michael Ford, has been alive. 
um, and now he's an MP. You mean the minister? <laughs> Min- oh, sorry, minister of multiculturalism, Michael Ford. Um, so that that was kind of funny to me. But um, you know what I know of of Denzelman and Wong is that he's often when there's a vote and it's a near unanimous vote, it'll be like all green, all green, and then the one red will be Min and Wong for a lot of a lot of a lot of votes on council. And these are um, you know usually kind of socially progressive things. I can't speak to anything in particular, but things like you know the drinking in the parks. I know there were a couple of dissenters. Or actually more than a couple. But um, that's what I know of him. It's always just like, oh, who's the one person who voted no? And it's always like Denzel Min and Wong. So it'll be interesting to see without that vote on on certain issues, like will more bills get pushed through? Will more policies be created that he doesn't dissent to? Um, I guess we'll see. Well, uh, you know. Municipal politicians are supposed to not be affiliated with parties, but there's this definite right-left split. Though, uh, frankly, looking at the things that go through on city council, I think we have a pretty left council, except perhaps on the issue of taxes, David. Well, uh, I guess, first of all, it's worth pointing out that 28 years is a very long time to be on council. <clears throat> on the other hand, I think one of the difficulties with the council has been in the, in the immediate past is that people have been there for a long time. Yeah. And I, I always used to oppose time, uh, uh, term limits because, I thought, well, it's up to the, the public to determine how long. But, but we have people there for a very long time now. That's a relatively new phenomenon. There were always people who were there for a long time, but most people stayed maybe two, three, sometimes four terms, right? But today you have quite a number of people been there a very long time. I understand that their value individually is good, and I know a number of them, uh, and they've done made a great contribution. But the city benefits from reinvigoration always. You need to you need to see the city through through kind of new eyes, a new generation's eyes, and that's why I think uh, Denzel's doing the right thing. Uh, he's made his contribution. He can move on to something else. There is life after politics, by the way. Um, so I, I think he's I think he'll be he's, he'll be a happy person. And other people might want to take a look at themselves on it. And I might say, by the way, there's already been five to half a dozen are already doing that. Karen, uh, you're somebody who uh, reinvented herself after politics. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, but it wasn't easy because when you're in politics, as David can attest to, you need to know a lot about, you need, you need to know a little about a lot, a lot of things. Of things. Uh, just like uh, reporters here. Just like reporters. <laughs> so at any moment in time, you need to be able to address housing issues, transit issues, community issues. And so the fast paced environment is invigorating and exciting. But it, it doesn't mean that you have a knowledge base that's easily transferable. And so it did take me some time to land in my current role and actually learn how to work with people again. Because when you're a counselor, you work with your colleagues to get certain things done. But it's not really, it's not really as cooperative politics as, as it should be. <laughs> and so, you know, learning how to, you know, work with a team, support each other, develop a strategic vision, you know, and um, just, just be more, you know, in, in an organization uh, was a transition and, um, and something that took me some time to adjust to. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, a lot of uh, former politicians, I guess, land in kind of the nonprofit world of, uh, you know, non-governmental organizations. It's, or, it's, it's, it's always been so that, that people... 
people in the professions are the ones who find more easily to go in and out of politics, whether that's lawyers or accountants or small business owners. Uh, it's easy for, easier for them to get in and out of politics. For those who are not in those kinds of professions, it is, as uh, just pointed out, is, is, is difficult. But there are lots of reasons why people still can participate in the public affairs of their day and not be an elected politician. There's right. lots of people do that. Exactly. Lots of people do that. Now, uh, I want to uh, get back to something we've been talking about, David, with you for the last few weeks, and that's the whole issue of basic services falling apart. I mean, whoa, last Friday we had that huge Rogers out, uh, outage, which of course affected a lot more than the city. But here's something that was reported on BlogTO. Toronto Park staff were caught dumping both recycling and garbage into the same compactor. So uh, is that a transgression because they thought no one was looking? Or is it a an acknowledgement of sorts that actually recycling, our recycling doesn't really work? Oh, well, I, uh, you might want to speak to it, Karen, but, but I, recycling can work uh, and, it, and it should not be. I mean, it's difficult to do recycling, and things change in the recycling world. But I would be a strong supporter of continuing recycling. What I'm not a strong supporter of are those who think that somehow uh, the city is kept clean and orderly uh, and useful to on a daily basis by some magic. It's it's done by a really top-notch public service. We 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 we, we very often tend to not un- appreciate what the public service does for us every day. You get out of bed, and every day, all the way through that day, you are in some way tended by the care and work of the public service of Toronto. So they have a they have a great opportunity to do the right thing. They have a great opportunity to do the efficient thing. They need to be reminded that that's their job. As I think I may have mentioned earlier in the past, Toronto was always well known for being well run, though, as they used to add, oft times badly governed. It was well run. It was clean and orderly. may have been boring, but sure as heck, the public services worked. I remember it used to be really clean. And then sometime, probably a long time ago now, I mean, we were all shocked when we started to see litter in the street. Absolutely. There are still overflowing garbage cans. I mean, what is that about? Um However, my question about the recycling is not that I'm against recycling, but every week or so I keep reading about how so much recycling ends up in the landfill because it's not recycled properly. And it's mostly residents, but it's probably not recycled properly because the recycling rules are not exactly simple. That's exactly it. So when we reached out to the city after seeing this image um, that a reader had sent in, it's like, look, they're pouring the garbage and the recycling into the same compactor. We reached out to the city and they said, this is just common practice because the recycling is so heavily contaminated with garbage. So if somebody throws their dog poop into the same, sorry, but like into the same, you know, bin as recycling, that's contaminated the whole load. So because people in parks just don't really care, they're throwing banana peels into recycling. It's just, you know, everything. It's, it's Better than on the ground, I might add. Yeah. Yeah, it's true, but it makes it difficult for them to kind of sort and recycle. So I think a lot of, um, like David was saying, a lot of the onus has to be put on the people to actually follow the rules and be diligent about recycling. The city can't spend the time going and parsing out every little piece of recyclable plastic in every bin. So, so I mean, that may be so, but then 
Karen, why does the city put out these <laughs> bins that have a separate recycling uh, hole if they're not going to be uh, emptying it separately? Well, to be honest with you, it's a bit of a public relations exercise at this point. People like the idea that they're recycling. They feel good about that. The fact that the recycling gets mixed with the garbage because most of it is contaminated is not is not part of what makes them feel good. And so <laughs> if you just had one big garbage bin, you'd get complaints from people. Why isn't the city recycling? But the reality is there's no there's no question. The nature of recycling recycled materials and the market for recycled materials has changed so dramatically that it is very, very difficult in a for households or even multi-residential units, let alone a park system, to manage that. And so if we were honest, we would just have one big black bin and make it easy for everybody. But then you'd have to deal with the reality and be honest with people. We don't recycle. Well, and, and maybe then it wouldn't overflow. And maybe it wouldn't overflow. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a, it, it's a much more complicated a problem than just the city's work on it because it's got to do with how consumer goods are packaged. It's got to do, so it's got to do with the source of the product, not just the end. Don't forget when it comes to recycling at the street level, that's at the end of the stream. Yeah. So being able to fix the issues, the issues that we're recycling for, right? That you need to go back upstream well, and, 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 and worry about that. That's be, that part is beyond mainly the city. That that has got to do uh, with consumer product uh, consumer product policy and the province. And apparently, it's being dealt with with a long tail, with a long phase in. But but the whole thing is is problematic. And Karen, I think you hit it right. Right there with saying that a lot of it is a public relations exercise and a lot of it is making us feel good about ourselves. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many conversations I have with my husband saying, is this recyclable? And then we go to the wizard and then, you know, yeah. it's just we try, but but I bet we often don't succeed. Well, the one, well, the one thing that changed. Oh, sorry, Karen. Oh, no, I was going to say, apparently, because I did an article about this for the North Toronto Post, apparently a greasy pizza box should get put in the green bin. What? Not the recycling bin. Yeah. If, if the pizza box has cheese or grease on it, it's contamination. It can't be in the recycling bin. I thought it has to go in the garbage. They said the green bin. I thought the garbage, too, is a better place for it, but they said the green bin. That's the, uh, one, of the, one of the roads we did not take was, in, was incineration. And, yes. and, and in many European cities... Uh, particularly Nordic cities, you'll find that there's a big incineration campaign. Has been for years. That's the service. They burn. We decided not to do that. Uh, uh, in, in, in my judgment, for the wrong reason. But 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 we decided not to go incineration, where you don't you do some recycling before you burn it. But by and large, it's more got to do with the incineration that deal, deals with the job. Hmm. Moving right along here, um, I want to talk about some changing demographics in the city. So we know that more than ever, young people are living with their parents. And when you look at housing costs and all the rest of it, that's been happening for a while. Uh, and also, I mean, I chuckled a bit when I saw a story in the Toronto Star today about the changing demographics of Yorkville and how the average income in Yorkville has actually gone down it's gone down to two hundred and thirty thousand dollars. 
<laughs> I don't know if you can manage in Yorkville for that. <laughs> but but uh, there's there's an age component to that because people, granted, well off people, uh, if they are selling their family homes or down they're downsizing to a really really expensive condo in Yorkville, uh, where everything is walkable and, and all of that. Also, the article pointed out that there are a lot more sort of small units where people might be living as single people. Sure. And I, I think the whole argument about uh, ramping up inclusionary zoning, um, missing middle housing, uh, more gentle intensification, all of those are ways in which to try and cheapen uh, housing and and, and 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 so people have greater choice and that's certainly one road that or a number of roads that people are are trying to take yeah but that's not happening in yorkville no, no. but but York, <laughs> listen we've always had places where people live who are better off than others you know uh, so I, I, it, it's not only a question of supply i know the provincial government currently thinks it's simply and only a question of supply, that if you build more housing, the price will go down. That is not true. Everybody who pays attention to it knows that's not true. You have to go out affordable housing with, with appropriate policies, with a direct vision. Right. So, uh, Lauren, what do you think of that demographic? And, and do you think it's a good thing that a place like Yorkville uh, is going to have a big population of people who are retired? You know what? I love that for Yorkville. It's, it's a very walkable neighborhood, like you said. It's beautiful. There are lots of great coffee shops. Why not like have it as more of a place for older people who are retired? They're usually the people who have the time to go and spend on the beautiful patios and the money to go shopping. Um, Yorkville's traditionally, you know, kind of been a ritzy sort of bougie place. So, I mean, I really, I, I think that's cool. I like that for Yorkville. Okay, let me ask you this. That, that line, I love that for you, isn't that a diss? No, I mean, if you say it ironically, like, oh, I love that for you. But no, no, I mean, it's seriously, like, I love that for Yorkville. Like, yeah, no, no, no. It can be if you said ironically, but I mean that sincerely. I really like that for Yorkville. I think let's get rid of all, like, the young guys in Maseratis and, like, let's, you know, like, start making it more of a community let's, again. Let's let's get rid of those. I mean, I, you know, it seems like a, a great place if you can afford it. But I, I don't like, Karen, the idea of having a kind of demographic ghetto. Yeah, because you certainly you don't you wouldn't want Yorkville to become like, you know, the Palm Beach of where everyone retires. You know, and then Palm Beach is pretty okay, by the way. I was there <laughs> this winter. This let's not diss Palm Beach, but go ahead. <laughs> but it's just a natural ebb and flow. And, you know, I think what we're seeing is probably um you know it's it, that's if when we look out ten years it Yorkville is going to look different again. It will um, always Yorkville will be different forever. It will always yeah, constantly will changing. Um, but but the uh, one thing that doesn't exist there is there's not a lot of schools. There's Jesse Ketchum. Jesse Ketchum. Um, Jesse Ketchum's been there for years, and it was a school for the old Yorkville. And I will not don't have the time, and you guys don't have the the willingness to listen to me. But let me say, the, I remember in Yorkville was a cheap place to live, and the village of artists moved from Gerard Street to Yorkville because they could afford it. <laughs> Well, yeah, okay. there there are plaques in Yorkville yeah. now Absolutely. with pictures of Joni Mitchell from the riverboat. Absolutely. Yeah. So then it went through another phase where it was hippydom. Then it went through another phase where where it was mainly 
four stories high, but every every floor used, and then it got into high rise. It's go it'll go into something else. Neighborhoods change, which going back to the previous discussion, it's always worthwhile remembering that stability isn't what happens to neighborhoods automatically. You have to deal with the new in order to make it stable. Good, good point. So uh, just before uh, we close, you know, last week we were talking about a noise bylaw. Uh, we are having the Indy this weekend for the first time in two years. You know, people, plug your ears. Uh, uh, are, you know, there's looking around here in Liberty Village, we've got construction, we've got roads closed, we've got everything, and now we have the Indy too. Yeah, I know. And I let me say, I, I wear earpieces, right? On both ears. Hearing aids? Hearing aids, right? And so when I go to these neighborhoods, when it gets noisy, I just take them out. (laughs) So I I put that out as a possibility. I mean, yeah, I like that. I I do the opposite. Sometimes when things are too noisy on the TTC, I put in um, those soft earplugs. I wear them to sleep when it's really noisy outside. So I think that works well for the Indy as well. They're really cheap. You can get them at Dollarama, just those little soft foam, put them in, helps a bit. But I mean, you can't stop noise in this city, especially with the Indy. You can hear it all over the town. Karen, last word to you. Oh, no, I was up um, in Muskoka for a couple days. Uh, Just got back this morning, actually. And uh, it was so quiet. It was eerie. When the city's ear, when the silence is eerie, you're a city girl. Okay, there, yeah. there's no pleasing you people. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Always a fascinating conversation. Thank you, Karen Stintz, Lauren O'Neill, and David Crombie. Thanks, Libby. Thanks, Libby. Thank you, Deb. Okay, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll discuss some of the fallout from that huge rate hike yesterday. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Yesterday's larger-than-expected rate hike will hit the real estate market first, and it's not just homeowners and aspiring homeowners who will be impacted. What about the bank of mom and dad? Many Zoomers help their kids get into the market with large down payments, or they co-sign mortgages, which they are ultimately responsible for. And more rate hikes are expected, and they are, of course, intended to bring inflation under control. But meanwhile, the outsize increases in the price of almost everything is hurting people on fixed income. So how to manage if you have concerns or questions or you want to tell us how you are managing, 416-360-360. 0740, toll free 1866 740 And now let's go to Phil Soper, President and CEO of Royal LePage, and Leslie Ann Scorgi, the founder of MeVest, a leading edge financial education company specializing in money coaching for Canadians. Hello to both of you. Hi. Hi, guys. Hi. <laughs> so uh, uh, let's let us begin with. Phil. So everybody talks about how this will affect homeowners, first timers, others, but but what about the funders of the bank of mom and dad? Yeah, you know, our research shows one in four uh, boomers will help their kids financially get into home ownership. 
as some research shows, it's even higher. A CIBC report showed uh, that it was up to 30%, so almost one in three. It's a big, a big deal. And of course, when uh, those uh, savings that they intended to uh, bequeath early, if you want to put it that way, to their kids in the form of a uh, form of helping them buy a home uh, shrink, it's uh, going to both cause stress for those uh, parents that want to help their kids and uh, stress among the first-time homebuyers, those millennials who were hoping to get into homeownership in an expensive city like ours, which is difficult. Uh, Leslie Ann, you've seen more of that, where it is a gift for a down payment, a large gift often, but it's considered kind of an advance on your inheritance. That's right. We're calling it living inheritance, and it's actually one of the top personal finance trends that we're seeing right now. I happen to believe that it is a fantastic, amazing way to move money from the older generation to a younger generation where, let's face it, they can really use the help right now. Now, there is a bit of a slippery slope, though. If money is moving for the intent of buying a home, the ultimate question is, can the person who's receiving the gift or the couple who's receiving the gift ultimately carry the cost of the mortgage? Can they make good decisions around their finances? And can they afford to to be homeowners after the gift has passed? But, you know, I think this is where uh, families need to get very clear on boundaries, on finances. And I'm a huge believer if, you know, if a family has not spent time on financial literacy, education, financial planning, now is your opportunity. So what Parents and boomers, we don't want to see happen. We don't want to see these gifts pass, and then they they ultimately kind of end up becoming a liability back on the boomer, who maybe they co-signed for the mortgage and they end up owning the house or or having to take over the payments for the house. So I'm all for living inheritance. I am seeing mega money transfer uh, early on. I like the trend. It's just with, you know, a little bit of caution, I would suggest. Well, Phil, I'm wondering if you're expecting or even starting to see some trouble, because the first uh, study that I saw about this is about two years old, two years ago, CIBC, and it was I was stunned that the average gift is $82,000. But I'm just thinking back, uh, if people got a gift of $82,000 two years ago when nobody thought interest rates would go up and they were stretched to begin with to get into that mortgage. Uh, what do you think the fallout from that is going to be? Well, if they did it two years ago, they, both the kids, I mean, it was the best timing in a, a gifter, gifter's life because those kids got a 40% lift on that $80,000 during the, during uh, the, 2020-21 time period, home values rose by about 40% in Ontario, a little less in other parts of the country, but steep, steep rising. And if the uh, parents are still homeowners, they got a similar lift on the property they're in. The real question comes back to 
was it something was was the home something that could be carried based on the kids' incomes uh, prior to the gift? The good news is there is some oversight in our country. You, if you're gifting a down payment that doesn't uh, let the kids escape what we call the stress test in this country. It doesn't matter whether it's a, it's a high leverage mortgage with mortgage insurance or not. You have to show that you can handle the mortgage payments at a much higher rate than the prevailing rate uh, in the future. So we've got a fairly well insulated um, home ownership group in this country, about seven and 10 uh, people. Uh, own their homes, uh, be they condos or cottages or farms or whatever, uh, and uh, they, they're they in good shape. I really don't expect to see a bump in people who are going to lose their homes, a material bump, uh, based on the fact they can't afford those mortgages because they proved they can't, unless we see a spike in the unemployment rate, which there has been no indication of that yet. Well, the stress test is you have to prove that you can handle a mortgage 2% higher. But if you're looking, I mean, I think if you're looking at the rates from two years ago and the rates that we expect further hikes, Leslie Ann, I mean, I, I'm not sure that covers it. We're, I was just going to, we're sharing a brain, Libby. I was just going to make that point. Looks like we're almost there from two years ago, that 2% stress test. So I, I really love what Phil brought up. We do have some mechanisms in place to help protect the like the borrower who would be this younger generation. Now, what we what we're seeing certainly in my community, um, and and we educate like thousands of Canadians every single month on you know making good choices with their finances. But what we're seeing is that a lot of them. During 2020, 2021, um, you know, even 2022, uh, they got in by the skin of their teeth into the housing market, partly with gifts, partly with their own, um, you know, their own hard work saving that down payment. Many of them took variable rate mortgages. And uh, a lot of them actually, because they have jobs, they can handle it right now. But they have like the classic ants in their pants. Scenario. They are so nervous about rising rates. And I'm not kidding you. If I told you, if I counted the emails and the direct messages that I have just gotten this week on the subject of variable rates, what should I do? Leslie Ying, like what, what's the advice here? I think I have more than a dozen. And, and these are individuals and couples who they, they are working. And, and Phil pointed out that we still do actually have a very strong um, like economy around jobs for like somewhat experienced professionals. It's a bit of a precarious job market for very new grads, but those are typically not the ones who are buying homes. So I think what, uh, what we're seeing is we're seeing like financial anxiety around these rising rates for those who were taking out those variable rate mortgages. It may have been suitable at the time because, oh my gosh, when you looked at those rates, uh, a year ago, they were sweet, but they are less sweet right now. Phil, um, do you see uh, people who are close to the edge 
you know, we know that a lot of people have really stretched themselves to do this. And, and do you see people maybe even putting their homes back on the market? I mean, it was different if they bought during that pandemic bump and had a, they probably had a different attitude when they were basically confined to their houses. And now, gee, you can go out again, you can do all kinds of stuff, but wait, there's no money left to do it. Yeah. You know, not yet. Uh, but employment, unemployment is at record lows, employment's at record highs. Uh, so it's not surprising it hasn't happened yet. There's a, a big hit to consumer confidence in, well, around the world. This isn't a Canadian unique situation to Canada. But if you look at the consumer confidence numbers uh, here, they're they're way, way down. People are worried. Business leaders are, are worried. But it's important, I believe, that we actually look at what's happening. So your, your question's a good one, Libby. The default rate on mortgages, very, very, very small. One of the smallest in the world at about a quarter of 1% of people. So 99.75% of people meet their commitments to the bank. And if uh, previous crises are an example, economic crises, if we go back to the the Great Recession, which was a much, much more dangerous economic time than this one, that was a 2008-2009 timeframe, that number only climbed to 0.4, a tiny fraction of what it was in the United States. Back then, it was probably 30 times higher in the United States. Right now, the U.S. default rate is probably 12 times higher than Canada. So we've got a, a really conservative lending culture in this country. They just don't like to see mortgages go into default. It can result in some downside. For example, I think it, it lends to the housing shortage we have in this country. It's hard to, to build to need when you've got such conservative lending practices. But when you come into a crisis like this, uh, it really does have people's backs. So, yes, people are concerned. No, uh, people are not uh, selling their properties because they're afraid. Um, and I guess the last thing is by far the most popular mortgage product in the country for years in Canada has been the five-year fixed-rate mortgage. If you got a five-year fixed-rate mortgage any time before the last six months, you were paying less than 3%. You're probably paying 2.5%, and that's locked in for five years, half a decade. I I sure hope we're out of this uh, financial challenge uh, well, well before then. Okay, we've got to take a break, and on the other side of it, we'll be back with more from Phil Soper and Leslie Ann Scorgi about the impact of interest rates. And as I said before, there's the other side of it. There's everyday living that's going way up. We'll talk about that as well. And the numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We'll be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are talking about yesterday's outsize interest rate hike and the impact 
on the real estate market, the impact of inflation on your financings, how to get by and what to expect in the future because more rate hikes are coming. I'm going to begin with a call from Alan in Toronto. Hello, Alan. How are you? Fine. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, I think one of the issues that is not being discussed is that where's that money from the boomers coming from? It's coming from their uh, RSPs, their other savings. And when you take the amount you can give, I think you have to look at what's happened in the uh, market in the last uh, few months, that the uh, value of your savings has dropped 20-25%. And I don't know when it's coming back, but there's less money available to give to your kids because you need that money for your retirement. Uh, so that's the that's a big issue, I think. And is it the, is is it something you're facing personally? Uh, not yet, but it it could come. Absolutely, it could come because you just you know some people are are fortunate they've got a fair amount in their savings, but that money's got to last a number of years. And if you're going to give away $80,000 now uh, from a depleted reserve, that could be an issue. Absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up, Alan. Uh, Phil, obviously, that's an issue, not to mention that if people are taking it out of their nest egg, they, they might not want to sell what looks to be hopefully a bottom. Yeah, you don't want to be selling equities at this point it's it's sadly if you look at history it's people with less means that tend to get frightened and sell in market bottoms and it's a time when people with more means particularly really rich people make um, a killing so if there's any way you can sit and be patient this too shall pass markets will rise again the economy the fundamentals of the economy are strong we have good innovation. We have we have a highly educated workforce. Uh, the economy will grow again. It the pandemic messed things up, and and just like that passed, you know the lockdowns and the and the artificial shutdowns of business. So will the aftermath, where we're paying for call it the short term excess that existed during the pandemic. Okay, well, and, and uh, you know, the pandemic isn't over. I say this as a caution to everyone. It's not Good over, point. and we don't know what's coming around the corner. And, Leslie Ann, have you encountered situations where people may have promised money and, and the situation changes? Yeah, we're actually coaching and, and counseling boomers right now not to move money from equities because of the depletion in the value. Like just this year, we're down 25% in the market. And if that boomer had major equity exposure, it's basically the worst time ever. Um, it's, it's contrary to what we, we know builds wealth and, and wealth gets built when you buy at those lower levels and you eventually sell high to, you know, Phil's earlier point. But I think um, what Alan's bringing up is so important right now is if you have a financial plan and you have 
flexibility in that plan, moving money to a child, maybe it's from your your own savings account, uh, not equities, it's fine. If you don't have that built into your plan, you could be putting yourself at risk. And so when we talk about living inheritance, I always suggest, like, build this into your plan. And it might not make sense to do it right now while we're riding out the volatility in the market, but it sure could make sense in a few years from now if it makes sense for your financial plan. So what we don't want to have happen is, uh, you know, the, the boomer move money and then compromise their retirement. And I always think of that um, when we all used to travel, the, uh, the safety announcement that would come on on the airplane and they'd say, you know, if we lose oxygen, please secure your own mask first before securing the mask of the person next to you. It is the exact same principle. When it comes to helping your children in any kind of financial capacity, you need to have your own financial security, your own financial plan rock solid before you lean over and start moving money to the next generation. So well, you, you know what? But I remember studies and they predate this particular bank of mom and dad study, which was showing that, that people were giving their kids maybe around 500 bucks a month for living expenses. And that's people who are not wealthy. Mm-hmm. And in, in some cases, yes, it does jeopardize their own retirement, their own living, because, uh, Phil, that's what parents do. Yeah. it's uh, Housing is very emotional. Uh, looking after your kids is very emotional. Sometimes tougher love is part of financial education, and, and that lesson just gets snowed over by emotional parents who just can't bear to see their kids you know, have everything. And even if it means self-sacrifice. So mm-hmm. it is whenever these, there are these kinds of periods of upheaval, you know, my heart goes up to, to people who are worried, even if honestly, even if they have not much to worry about, their kids are full-time employed, they have good jobs, uh, their savings have gone down, but they will come back if they can just sit there during this this time of waiting for, you know, the headlines to, to give a little hint of something positive because all the news just seems to be, uh, be, be very, very well dire these days. And, and I know that weighs on people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, Leslie Ann, I mean, you know, I, I would imagine that your work, you know, veers into uh, counseling a lot of the times and it not does. financial counseling necessarily. We, it's, and I'm so glad you brought it up, Libby, because we're, we work from a place of positive money psychology, which means that you work on your skill set, absolutely, but you also need to work on the way that you think feel and behave with your finances. And you're seeing more and more reports, especially as we're emerging from the pandemic, hopefully, uh, of, of people who have felt the need for total financial wellness, which includes being, um, you know, psychologically uh, feeling well in this department, but also having the skills and the tools to help be well practically when it comes to their finances. 
So I, I echo what Phil just said. Like it is, it's hard to see people struggle with uh, anxiety and uh, and concern about finances right now. But it's it's for good reason. We have some market factors that are are putting a lot of pressure on wallets, and we're talking about high inflation. We're talking about very high rates, and they're they're going not very high yet, but they're getting higher. So you know there are some factors here. But I always say, um, you know, when you're when you're trying to find your financial zen, if you will, it is really important to have a vision. For the future, to to think ahead, uh, to do what you can to control the factors that you can control. You can't control inflation, and you can't control rising right. interest rates, but you can control the way that you you spend. You and can control how how you give your money and not. Phil, uh, before we go, you know, we're in, people are saying we're in a wait and see period. Don't sell at the worst possible time. Hang in and wait. Should they be hanging in and waiting when it comes to the purchase of a home? Really depends what state of life you're in. I break it down into three really broad categories. The first time home buyer, the move up home buyer, and the call it end of, um, uh, home ownership, life, home seller. For that last group, if you're selling your home and you don't intend to um, own the, again, you're moving into, say, managed care, and uh, you're going to be paying rent. If you can wait, I'd wait, because home prices will start to rise again. For that middle group, most people move laterally or they move up. Uh, even Baby boomers who are finally rid of kids, our research shows uh, 57% will buy a home that's larger or at least the same size. So downsizing is a bit of a myth. If you're moving to a property that's the same value or higher, you've got to remember that, yes, you're selling your home for less than you anticipated, say, in, in the spring, but you're also buying for less. Phil, 30 seconds left. Sorry. Yeah. No worries at all. If you're a first-time home buyer, you have to weigh the cost of money, rising rates against the potential that homes uh, could get cheaper. Okay, I think I think that uh, the lesson from both people is uh, it, it seems like a bit of a frenzy, both the markets and, and the real estate market, but uh, take a deep breath and then have a good look at everything, right? <laughs> That's Absolutely. great. Okay, and great, thank great you. Great talking to you both. Great talking Thank to you, you both. Uh, thank you both, Phil Soper, Leslie Ann Scorgi, and that's all the time we have for today. Remember, Free For All Friday is coming up tomorrow. If you couldn't get through or if there's something else that's on your mind, that's your day to call in. That's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.